Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Well, hello, 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 everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate. I am delighted to welcome my guest, Michael Cotis. It's great to be here. Thanks for asking me. It's an absolute pleasure, man. I'm, as you can tell, I'm really excited to talk to you. So, of course, we always get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are, how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Well, um, at the moment, um, I'm a, a, a reporter and photojournalist focused on environmental issues and uh, primarily as the senior editor at Inside Climate News. Mm-hmm. which is the nation's largest, oldest, and uh, at least by some measures, most honored uh, uh, newsroom focused on climate issues. But I started uh, as a newspaper journalist uh, uh, a long time ago, back in the 1980s, and uh, actually started out as a photojournalist uh, uh, for many years and uh, focused largely on environmental issues whenever I could and eventually uh, worked at a gig at the newspaper I worked at where I was uh, writing and shooting my own environmental stories and had this um, um, enviable um, opportunity to uh, once a year do a big, uh, uh, what they called adventure journalism, but for me was a way of kind of doing a big environmental story and sugarcoating it with adventure. So, you know, got to hike the Appalachian Trail one summer and uh, sea kayak uh, around Long Island Sound. So, uh, you know, did the, you know, circumnavigated uh, all of Long Island Sound over a month one summer. Wow. Worked as a Forest Service firefighter one summer. Um, so, uh, you know, a bunch of things like that uh, for, for big projects. And those often led to uh, books. Um, and then uh, back in 2008, um, I took a buyout from uh, the Tribune Company for the, from the newspaper I worked for mm-hmm. and uh, came to Boulder as a Scripps Fellow in Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado Boulder and eventually ended up being one of the directors of that program for about six years and uh, left that about two years ago and have been with um, Inside Climate News since shortly after that. Um, and awesome. uh, just folk, you know, uh, editing and guiding daily coverage of the climate. We we publish uh, climate news, uh, you know, unique climate news that we produce every day of the year. So awesome. Um, what's the difference between a photojournalist and a regular journalist? Uh, only that they work with a camera. And in the okay. world that I work in, and when I taught photojournalism, um, you're basically still a reporter. You know, mm-hmm. you've got find the story and be able to report the facts of the story and spell everybody's name right and you know background your photos and write really detailed cut lines for your photos Mm -hmm. um but you're also you know telling these stories visually with photos and now often with video and and telling stories with photos and video is different than telling them with words um, and in my case, you know, I started out, I, I was always a writer as well as a photographer. And uh, it's kind of like I wrote captions for my photos that kept getting longer and longer. And eventually they just turned into the stories that accompanied my photos. Awesome. Where are you from originally? I'm from the Kansas City area. I, okay. uh, I grew up largely in, in Kansas, um, but uh, I worked on the East Coast in Connecticut for about 25 years before coming to Colorado. And so I was uh, covering everything from New York City up through uh, uh, through the Northeast up to Maine. Um, so have a fairly wide region that I worked in. Where did your like fascination with the natural world originate, do you think? Hard to say, you know, I grew up, um, you know, was a Boy Scout and camped a lot. Um, mm-hmm. My father was an avid hunter, so I grew up hunting and shooting. Um, and then uh, probably when I was about 12 was in, um, in a camp here in Colorado actually and learned to rock climb and kayak and do kind of more adventurous sports there and, and really um, came to love that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, was, I've been an avid climber for you know, decades now and uh, that's led to a number of my kind of adventure stories but also um, got me really interested in environmental issues. Um, mm-hmm but I also grew up around agricultural communities 
Um, and so I saw the way drought, um, you know, management of land affected the food we eat and uh, the crops we grow, the, the uh, livestock we keep. And so that uh, was something I've always really been interested in too. Some of my earliest stories were about say early feedlots and huh. uh, uh, you know, various uh, decisions about how we manage agricultural land in the Midwest. And when did you determine that you wanted to be a journalist? Is there something in particular, in particular that inspired you to move that way? Um, I, you know, I saw the power of, uh, of newspapers and journalism just growing up. You know, my family got the newspapers in Kansas City. That was back when Kansas City actually had the Kansas City Star and the Kansas City Times, and they were competing newspapers. And uh, uh, after college, ended up interning at one and, and working for the other one as a freelancer. Um, so uh, I kind of grew up really interested in journalism. And then um, there was uh, a few photographers, very famous photographers in Kansas. One um, is Gordon Parks, who was from Fort Scott, Kansas, which is kind of where my family originally is from nearby. Um, you know, it's near Pittsburgh, Kansas, where my father grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, you know, one of the first great African-American photojournalists, shot a lot for Life magazine. Um, and so I saw a lot of his work growing up. And then another photographer out of Wichita, Kansas, named W. Eugene Smith. Mm-hmm. And uh, Smith was kind of the father of the photo essay, the photo story in Life magazine, back when Life magazine was where you went to see these narrative stories told with photographs. Um, and Smith did an, uh, an essay in the early 1970s, uh, you know, right around the time that we were really getting concerned about the environment out of Japan, about Minamata, Japan, uh, which was a, is a, a town in a region that was horribly poisoned by uh, mercury released by industries there. And that's really what put the... Um, the perils of mercury poisoning on the world's map. Um, wow. You know, it's something that we had known about and had been reported about by others, but nobody had shown it in photographs. And he showed, you know, the not just the um, terrible um, damage that mercury poisoning can do to the human body and, and all these disabled people, but also the way the corporation that was doing this poisoning fought back and fought the people who were trying to get justice in this. And they actually uh, sent thugs who beat W. Eugene Smith very, very badly, uh, you know, within, you know, uh, close to uh, making him lose his life and probably shortened his life um, in trying to keep him from making these photographs. And I found that to be a really inspirational story. Um, There's actually a movie coming out about W. Eugene Smith in Japan um, called Minamata. Uh, mm-hmm. that has uh, Johnny Depp portraying Smith. Um, uh, um, you know, I, I have no idea whether I'm going to like that or not, but, uh, but you know, having been a Smith fan pretty much for my entire life. But, uh, but it is uh, interesting that, you know, so many years later, the tale of this journalist who documented this is, is getting told. Wow. Have you ever had any sort of similar situation happen to you? I know you've been in some very dangerous places when you've been doing your work. Have you ever had someone, you felt like someone was going to kind of come after you because of the work that you were writing? Oh, I've been punched out on assignment and (laughs) grabbed my cameras or dragged me away by my camera straps or, uh, you know, a few times uh, uh, held by authorities um, who didn't want me documenting what uh, what I was documenting. To be honest, usually those things happened uh, with uh, the, the, the most violence that I've experienced happened uh, covering young people, often at college mm-hmm. campuses, uh, you, know, when, you know, where riots had broken out and things like that. So uh, kind of more domestic things. Um, I've had a few um, close calls working overseas, but usually have, uh, uh, um, you know, hired fixers, people to help me out who mm-hmm. were able to, you know, keep me out of trouble and, and you know, get me away from, um, you know, um, people who might want to either prevent me from telling my story or steal my cameras or what have you, you know, and that's huh. kind of a key thing with, when you're working overseas, particularly in the developing world is you right. know, find people to help you who can, uh, can guide you and keep you from getting into too much trouble. 
Yeah, before knowing too much about it, I never would have thought of someone like working for a newspaper as being like a super exciting, invigorating job. But you've definitely been around the world and seen some amazing things. So I think anyone who has that kind of mindset should certainly rethink it because you're on kind of like on the front lines trying to show the world some of the craziest stuff going on, specifically when we get into talking about that, that poster behind you, your book, Megafire and the wildfires and the craziness of the ecological crisis. There's definitely a lot of stuff going on that is dangerous and exciting at the same time but before we kind of go into the weeds because i have a million questions i'd want to ask you i want to i want to talk about um your most recent endeavor which is working as the senior editor at inside climate news correct yeah yeah and i you know i, I will couch that uh you know news i i love newspaper work i love working in newsrooms yeah uh, but you know i only tell people the exciting stories because those are the good stories to tell i don't mm-hmm. tell about the 30 sewer commission meetings I had to go <laughs> between those things that are mind numbingly boring and you're trying That's to funny. figure out a way to make them interesting and compelling. So um, it's not like I was always on a plane flying off to some exciting location. You know, I got a great, exciting assignment every you know few months or six months. And mm-hmm. in between that, it was just the workaday stuff that you see in every day in every newspaper, which is critically important. It's really That's what I was gonna say. we have local journalists doing that kind of work because you know that really is the bread and butter and uh mm-hmm. you know it's uh you know we would never be able to do the big projects overseas and do these uh you know investigative things that we do if we didn't have you know dedicated local journalists working day in and day out to tell you the news that you really need to know to just manage your daily life so um you know, yeah, I, no I, doubt. You know I'm, I'm equally proud of having done that even though it doesn't make particularly uh, great uh, storytelling fodder later in life sure we all got to play our part though that's kind of how these things work but um yeah so tell me what is inside climate news we already kind of mentioned it a little bit but what's like the mission behind the organization so inside climate news is nonpartisan um uh you know uh unbiased coverage of all aspects of climate change and what we would consider newsworthy um, issues with climate change um, that adheres strictly to traditional journalistic standards of, you know, verification, telling all sides of an issue, you know, finding the documents to support, um, you know, what we report. Um, You know, there's so much material out there, you know, in the blogosphere and elsewhere that is either um, people linking into other people's reporting and then kind of holding court over it, you know, casting their opinions or, you know, just, you know, um, you know, uh, stuff that is not supported by fact or science. And we, uh, you know, take the time to make sure that all of our stories are factual, are supported by science, that we've talked to all sides of an issue and trying to present it uh, both as um, unbiased as we can, but also um, in a way that is compelling to your average reader. And, uh, you know, we're free. So anybody can go there. It's written for your uh, average reader. It's run by a bunch of old newspaper people. So, you know, you're not going to pick up a story there and have it be uh, so um, laden with complex science that you're not going to be able to understand it. And the stories are, you know, uh, exciting. It's a, it's a really a top-notch newsroom. Um, we're the li- largest uh, newsroom in the country focused on climate, you know, even larger than the climate teams at, say, the New York Times or, or the Washington Post. So, uh, you know, uh, that's a really interesting place for me to work totally. in that I can remember back in the 1990s going to editors I worked with pitching stories on climate change and just saying, hey, we should do a project about climate change and kind of, you know, just getting pushed out of the room. All those environment stories you like to do, CODIS, they're always boring or they've always got the science in them. You know, nobody likes that. Nobody's going to be interested in a story about climate change. You know, and then when I'd mention, you know, climate is going to be a big beat. You know, it's going to mm-hmm. be, it's going to be a, a, a story that newspapers and Uh, broadcast news networks are going to have dedicated reporters covering and they'd laugh me out of the room. Nah, (laughs) climate change, you know, you hear about it every month. 
Now I work at a place where not only do we cover the climate beat, but you know we've got you know anywhere from ten to twenty full-time journalists with benefits covering specific subbeats of climate. So we have a climate and agriculture reporter. We have a dedicated oil and gas and climate reporter. We're probably the only outlet in the world that actually has a climate super pollutants reporter who works just covering, you know, chemicals that are the most damaging to climate, you know, full time every day. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, the news world has really come around to uh, the idea that climate isn't just, you know, kind of a niche that we need to be looking at, you know, along with say weather, but actually climate is, you know, the most important story of our lifetime. And, you know, we are going to have to dedicate not just one person to it, but, uh, you know, a small army. army of people to it with specializations within climate. Um, so that, you know, we also are, we're a, a dispersed staff. So our main office is in New York, but I manage reporters from Austria to California who work for us. Um, and, uh, you know, we are very focused on the U.S. because most of our readership is here, but we cover issues from the Arctic to Antarctica and on all, all seven continents. That is just so amazing, man. That was, uh, I don't even know what to say to that. Um, I, what I want to ask right away is what have you learned about solution implementation when you're constantly surrounded by all these people who are reporting on climate? Anything, any positive good news to deliver? There is positive good news. Um, anybody that knows me well would say, don't go to CODIS for positive good news. Uh -oh. uh, <laughs> There's an adage that I used to use teaching journalism that a lot of journalism instructors use, uh, you know, which is um, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Um, and so with positive good news, we are, you know, we're critical, not critical mm -hmm. in that, you know, we attack it, but critical in that, you know, prove it to us. Yeah, you know, let's see the data. Let's, you know, see how uh, this climate solution is going to work and if it's going to work. And that means uh, I spent, uh, spend a lot more time kind of punching holes in good news or saying maybe the news isn't as good as it should be um, rather than promoting, hey, here's this cool new idea as a climate solution. We certainly do that. Mm -hmm. um, if you want some good news, you know, one thing is to look at what happened with the oil and gas industry in the last few months and basically in the matter of two days, ExxonMobil, Shell and Chevron all had various shareholder revolts where we actually ended up with climate activists on the board at ExxonMobil. Shell was ordered by the government of, uh, you know, the Dutch government where it's based to actually uh, present um, hard um, evidence of how it was going to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accord. And Chevron also had, you know, uh, shareholder operations that really affected those companies and how they're managing, um, you know, uh, their transitions to clean energy and how they're going to reduce their emissions. And, you know, that's good news in the big picture, just to see the oil and gas industry being forced by within its own businesses to start to try to meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accord. But it's also good news in that it shows that, um, you know, your average shareholder, your average activist who wants to get involved in climate change can have an impact on, you know, the businesses that have the biggest impact on climate. Um, and so, you know, that was, uh, you know, without, you know, taking sides in it, that was certainly a big win for um, climate activists. Um, and so that's, you know, that's something that, you know, we saw as, uh, you know, we could see coming and, you know, weren't sure how it would uh how it would pan out, but covered it, you know, fairly extensively and was, uh, you know, a very, um, you know, interesting and exciting time in, in the climate movement. Um, so, you know, that's some good news, something that's happened out there as far as, you know, good news for the average person, you know, sitting at their, um, sitting at their desk wondering, you know, what can I do about climate change, which is something that, you know, we're very concerned about. We realize that most of the news is bad and we're a news outlet. And, you know, the uh, nature of news is that, you know, you're usually telling people about things that need to be corrected and fixed, which means you're passing on a lot of bad news and it can mm -hmm. be overwhelming. And people can look at this thinking, you know, this problem is so huge 
and so intractable. What, you know, there's nothing that I can do about it. And we're, you know, increasingly seeing that there actually are things that we can do about it as individuals. Um, I'll couch that by saying, you know, this concept of your personal climate footprint has been seen, you know, by a lot of activists and a lot of journalists as something that has been promoted by big industry to try to take the heat off of them. And I don't huh. want to contribute to that. Um, you know, the idea of the climate footprint was really uh, first pushed by the oil and gas industry. And it's a way of saying, oh, no, it's not us. It's those customers that we have, you know, who are, you know, not considering their impact on climate. And, um, you know, I don't want to um, encourage that kind of thinking. We do need huge policy change. We do need pressure put on the most polluting corporations and a lot of pressure put on them. But there are things that we can do as individuals, I believe, that do make a difference, if only mm -hmm. because they change society's attitude and the way that we deal with things. And so, um, you know, I've written a lot about palm oil and uh, the problems with palm oil. And, you know, that kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, we can consider where we buy our groceries, what we eat, how we consume in ways that uh, has a minuscule impact on the climate directly, but does have a substantial um, impact on attitudes and how people live their lives, you know, and, 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 you know, what is available in our, our grocery stores. If we quit eating and purchasing um, products that have substantial climate impacts, they're not going to be on the shelves anymore. And so, uh, you know, little individual choices about what we buy and considering how we impact the climate and recognizing that we all impact the climate, there's no way to avoid it. But there are choices that we can make to minimize that. And uh, those choices may seem to have very little impact on the climate because we're just you know, one of billions, but they do have uh, impacts on attitudes, how uh, you know, people uh, you know, in, in groups consume and what products are available to us. So, you know, that's always something to think about, you know, what kind of car am I buying, you know, what, you know, what, how am I fueling my life, you know, how do I heat my home, all those things make a little bit of a difference. Yeah, and it can all have like ripple effects too. like you don't realize how profound an impact you can have on your network, especially if you're like an influencer, if you're someone that people look to for advice or respect on a specific topic, the way you behave, people pay attention to. Um, so I always try to talk about how the individual can have a really profound impact. And that's interesting that you say that the oil and gas companies uh, started that campaign. I had never even considered that possibility. It's probably quite clear that the biggest emitters are obviously the ones with the biggest, uh, with the biggest paychecks as well, because they, they're moving, moving industry the most. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just find it funny. I think I knocked on your door the day that that case had just like closed, which is really oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, and it's, you know, and that, that was a fascinating, um, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, I mean, it's obviously it's, you know, it's shareholder time. It's when, you know, big corporations are going through these things. But the fact that this happened in the matter of two days or less with three different big oil companies, I think, spoke a lot to the way attitudes have changed towards big oil. Mm -hmm. And um, when you when you you talk about uh, you know they have the biggest paychecks, that also means that they've got the most to invest in mm -hmm. in fighting regulation and pushing back against control to uh, the the most money to invest in lobbying and supporting political campaigns, um, and so it's not surprising that we've had so much difficulty in reining in the biggest polluting companies in the world. What's surprising is the fact that we've man that, that climate activists have managed to prevail mm -hmm. even in a few cases over that kind of money and that kind of political influence. Well, I plan to make it less surprising as the years go on. Me and, and all of our friends working together, we're going we're gonna to change the society so it has a more positive impact is, is the goal. Um, <laughs> and any particularly uh, favorite stories that you've written so far at Inside Climate News? 
You know, I don't get to write as much as I want um, or shoot as much as I want, but I will be able to go out and do a couple coming up. One that I was the editor on and uh, one of our really great investigative reporters broke just a few weeks ago was basically, and again, you know, people come to us for bad news or scary news, but it's basically uh, was that the melting permafrost in Alaska has actually damaged the Alaska pipeline. And so uh, the company that runs the Alaska pipeline is having to replace a bunch of the girders and supports for the Alaska pipeline, but also install hundreds and hundreds. They've actually got more than 100,000 already installed in these supports of what they call thermosiphons. And these are effectively chillers that suck heat out of the permafrost and uh, to you know uh, release that heat into the atmosphere to try to keep the permafrost frozen. There are these tubes that they can uh, put down, you know, 30, 40, 50 feet down into the permafrost to keep it frozen, which just shows how much money is in oil and gas when they can invest that kind of money and that kind of technology to keep the permafrost frozen so that they can keep operating the pipeline to get more of the stuff that is thawing the permafrost. Um, there's a, a great irony in that. Yeah. Well, it does more than melt the permafrost too. We, we, we gotta admit, we need oil and gas at this point. We, we can't, we need a slow wean off out of the system. You know, we need to, it's, it's tough, you know, Transition. It's, you know, um, you know, I, you know, we're operating, um, our lives on oil, gas, coal, on fossil fuels. And yeah, we do need to wean ourselves off of that. Uh, there's great debate in the scientific community about uh, how quickly we need to wean ourselves off of it and how quickly we have to wean ourselves off of, off mm -hmm. of it. So I don't want to, you know, make, um, you know, the oil and gas industry out to be, you know, Darth Vader with the Death Star. And these are just totally evil people. He was I've redeemed at the end of this, at the end of the movie. There we go. There we go. And and certainly, you know, the oil and gas industry can can probably redeem itself. I mean, right. some of them are moving very quickly into renewables. Um, but they also are, you know, uh, you know, transportation in the U.S. is our uh, uh, biggest emitting sector of greenhouse gases and climate warming gases. And so, you know, the oil and gas industry are, uh, you know, oil in particular, are huge drivers of climate change. And, uh, you know, no industry like that that is basically printing money is going to change their business model without being pressured. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, part of our job is not necessarily to pressure them, but to provide the information that allows people to make the decisions that will help pressure them and help make this change. Um, so, uh, so anyway, that was a, that was a story and we'll, we'll be doing a lot more up in Alaska. Um, sure. to, you know, we have, you know, some stories that are, uh, um, you know, novel, you know, and fun. Um, we had a great photo essay last Sunday on Inside Climate News by a journalist named Derek Jackson. And uh, he's a terrific um, wildlife, particularly bird photographer, but also a former columnist at the Boston Globe, a great writer, um, very focused on environmental justice. And it, it, his story and his column was basically about the success in cleaning up the Charles River in Boston and how cool. this river that was dangerous to swim in years ago is now um, people swim in it, they boat on it, and it's full of all this life. And he you know, follows, you know, uh, some you know bird life and just wonderful uh, photos of you know the life that has um, you know built up in the Charles River since it was uh, you know successfully cleaned up or in the process of its uh, cleanup. So you know uh, you know we we cover all aspects of climate and one of my arguments for many years in journalism even as we started to cover climate is that this beat is much bigger than most people realize and most journalists who work on it realize. Um, so, uh, you know, working at a place where, like I said, you know, we have agriculture reporters and, you know, this huge range of people that focus on climate and its myriad impacts and the myriad things that affect it is, is really exciting. It means that we have, you know, it's not that we're just always writing about oil and gas or emissions. We have a new story and a new take, you know, almost every day. Um, you know, one day is very different from the previous day. 
No kidding. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing everything about that. It's it's some amazing stuff, and I really enjoyed hearing about it. And I'm gonna I'm gonna start reading the paper, man. I'm not a big news guy, as people might have heard on previous episodes of the podcast, but I definitely this would have a lot to to help me and support my business. And I'd love to hear some positive news moving forward, if possible. But um, sure. what what I really wanna hear hear about from you is uh, your experience with wildfires and writing your book, Megafire. And just want to hear about the good and the bad of wildfires and how climate has been impacting this. Specifically, it affects us directly here in the West, profoundly. Yeah. So I got interested in wildfire, you know, more than 30 years ago. Um, And uh, I was a young journalist um, uh, covering uh, the Northeast. You know, I was based in Connecticut. We don't really think of that part of the country as having a wildfire problem. It increasingly is. Um, and this was probably, you know, within a year of me starting in my first staff job as a photojournalist and, you know, over the police scanner, I heard reports of a wildfire and could see smoke in the distance and raced off and parked my car, grabbed my cameras, hopped over a couple of fences and, you know, trying to get close to where I could see this smoke rising so I could, you know, make some picture of, uh, you know, some dramatic mountainside covered with flames. Didn't really think about the fact that we didn't have mountains or forests like that in New England, but nonetheless, uh, you know, was able to get close enough to where I could see a group of uh, men digging a line around a big grass fire. And that's how we fight wildfires in the United States. We fight them more with dirt than we do with water. Um, and basically what you want to do is you're, you're digging a trail or a road around a fire to contain it, to deprive it of fuel so that when the fire gets to where you've dug down to mineral soil, well, dirt doesn't burn. And so the fire will stop there. Um, and, you know, we use, you know, rivers and we'll use roads, but basically what you're trying to do is surround the wildfire with stuff that doesn't burn and, mm-hmm. and corral it. And so these gentlemen were uh, uh, digging this line around this fire and I'd never seen that before. And I was just raising my camera to my eye to make a picture of them digging a line around this fire and, and heard screaming and looked up and there's a guy about the size of a bulldozer running at me and he's wearing a badge. And I thought, oh, this can't be good. And this guy proceeds to tackle me Ooh. and explain to me in uh, less polite language than I can use here that, uh, <laughs> you know, those fences you hopped over, those were the perimeter fences of one of Connecticut's prisons. And you have trespassed onto this prison. All the firefighters are prison inmates. And, uh, you know, they can't just walk out and you can't just walk in. Um, and the guy started to drag me out of the fire and cursing at me. And as he did that, the the weather changed and, and the wind got behind the flames and uh, the fire blew up and was about to overrun one of these inmate firefighters. And I was trying to raise a camera to take a picture of this guy running for his life. And uh, I can tell you that that's not possible when you're being manhandled by a guy who will probably weighs 250 pounds and has been restraint, trained to restrain violent felons. Um, And so, you know, and then eventually the guard sees what I'm trying to do. And I figure, okay, now I'm not going to get to leave prison. You know, he's just going to keep me here or he's going to handcuff me or he's going to throw his hand in the lens of my camera or take my cameras away. And instead he kind of picked me up by my armpits and pointed me at the action. And I was able to motor drive a sequence of photos of this prison inmate running for his life from a fire. And then the wind died down, the fire died down, and the prison inmate went back to work, and uh, and the guard knocked me down again and started cursing at me again and took me uh, to the fence and, you know, threw me back over the fence I'd walked in on, and you know that's basically how I got thrown out of prison. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it was a yeah, and the photo was you know this very dramatic photo. You can see it in my book. Um, mm. It got circulated nationally, won some prizes, got a bunch of attention, which, of course, as a young journalist, you know, you love winning contests, you know, it's validating. But um, but what I really learned was that prison inmates fight wildfires. Mm-hmm. And when I looked into it, I discovered that actually thousands of prison inmates fight wildfires across the country, and most of them fight fires outside the grounds of their prisons. You know, we have prison fire crews across the country. Here in Colorado, we have prison inmate fire crews that help out on these big wildfires. And in California, a few years ago, you know, one of the gentlemen I talked to there estimated that about 60% 
of the personnel on any given big wildfire in California are prison inmates who are part of these prison inmate fire crews. Um, and so that really fascinated me that the fire problem is such, you know, it's grown so significant that we are training prison inmates to fight wildfires and taking them out of their prisons to help battle these blazes. Um, mm -hmm. Years later, I actually uh, trained and joined a crew of firefighters from the East Coast and came out here to Colorado and Wyoming and spent a summer working as a, as a, a firefighter, a wildland firefighter for the Forest Service. Um, and again, you know, it was really interesting to me was that these were mostly state employees in the state of Connecticut who I traveled with, who were fighting wildfires in other states. And I thought, well, how does that work? That these guys are on the payroll of one state, but working in a different state fighting wildfires. Mm -hmm. And uh, both those things kind of, you know, were um, illustrative to me that, you know, this fire problem is growing and, um, and, you know, we don't really know as a nation how to deal with it. Now, this is before we've seen anything like we've seen right now. Crazy. Um, and I got fascinated with the science and the uh, economics, everything that plays into our wildfire crisis, which is a lot of what my book is about. My book is narrative you know, and uh, follows a very particularly bad fire season that was very bad here in Colorado, but was bad around the country and around the world. Um, and uh, starts out with um, the, the death of the Granite Mountain hotshots. So uh, a hotshot crew uh, uh, in which 19 of the 20 members were killed in a fire in wow. Arizona in 2013. And, you know, then kind of circles back after following this horrible fire year to exactly how this occurred. And um, it's easy to look at these things as natural disasters. And what I came to determine after you know, literally decades of covering wildfires and about seven years focused intensely on covering wildfires for this book was that the fires, the wildfires that we consider disasters have very little natural about them. Mm -hmm. They are responses to decisions that we've made as a society. Um, you know, climate is a huge factor in this and wildfires where we really see a strong climate signal. There are other things where there's climate signals, but they're not as dramatic. And that's one reason why I really wanted to focus on wildfire. But it's also a reflection of how we develop and how we live. You know, and this is something that, you know, um, the, uh, uh, you know, home building and the home selling industry is very involved in and very concerned about, uh, you know, about a third of U.S. homes across the country now are in what firefighters call the wildland urban interface, which is mm -hmm. basically close enough to flammable open space that these houses could be burned down in a wildfire. That a third of our housing stock, you know, you're talking, you know, 44, 45 million people living in homes that could be destroyed in a wildfire. Um, so that's a huge driver of this and a huge um, influence on um, our wildfire problem. When we move into these flammable landscapes, we're not just putting our homes and our property at risk. We also become the primary fire starter in these landscapes. So if you look across the country and you see a wildfire and it is burning at a time of year when we don't have thunderstorms, well, the only natural uh, ignition of wildfires of note is lightning. And so if, it, if a fire is burning outside of the season that you get lightning, it is almost certainly a human start in one way or another. That's and the only so, way? Lightning? There's no like there, magnifying there's a, glass thing where the tree lights on fire? No? Well, well how's that magnifying glass? Get I there? don't know. It's like a natural, I know it's, it's we make those, but isn't there some, there's something in nature that, that would cause be, it, no? it's funny you bring that up. So, um, you know, cause in my book, I write about a, a, a wildfire investigator looking for wildland arson. Mm -hmm. And um, he talked about a fire that he was investigating where he was certain it was an arson and he's honing in, getting to the spot where it ignited, getting to where it just started. Mm -hmm. He said, I finally got to where that fire started and I fell over laughing. I literally was sitting on my ass in the grass and the burnt grass laughing. And it was a broken bottle at just mm -hmm. the right angle to magnify a sunbeam to ignite grass. Yep. 
that's a human start. That is a human start, sure. Our power lines that start fires are human starts. The sparks from our vehicles are human starts. We start fires in myriad ways. Arson is a minority. The cigarette out the window is a minority. Mm-hmm. We, you know, the, the way all of us live starts fires. And when we move and develop an area, we go from, you know, that area that was previously undeveloped with no roads, where the only thing that could start a fire there was really lightning, suddenly is getting fires started by power equipment, by vehicles, by power lines, by all kinds of things, all of which are human starts. So, you know, that's another really fascinating aspect in the way that, you know, the fire cycle has gone from being something that started as a weather phenomenon that's that now is started from human activity, you know, in one way or another. What about like a, a volcano or something? Volcano this certainly can. Yes. But that's right, I'm just thinking rare. of <laughs> no, 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 it's just that, you know, and, 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 you know, there are other natural things that start wildfires, but they're statistically insignificant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, don't have a lot of wildfires started by volcanoes here in the United States. Fair enough. We have thousands of wildfires every year started by humans. So what's the deal then with like the benefits of like a controlled burn or like the positive benefits of like a fire? So uh, fire is natural to almost every vegetated landscape. And most of those vegetated landscapes actually need fire much in the way that they need rain. Probably not as much fire as, they, as, as rain, but you know, they need uh, fire every once in a while. Um, and that's another driver of our fire crisis is that, um, you know, a little over 100 years ago, the U.S. basically declared a zero tolerance policy for wildfire, you know, and uh, eventually that grew into um, a policy that was implemented in the 1930s called the out by 10 a.m. policy, which was any natural wildfire spotted in, uh, in, on, on federal land in the United States was supposed to be extinguished by 10 a.m. the day after it was sighted. Mm-hmm. Um, that meant that a lot of these natural fires that these forests were dependent on were suddenly put out. Now, if you look out at the Ponderosa pine forest that we have here above Boulder, some of these forests evolved to burn as often as every two to five years. Not burning huge stand, you know, replacing crown fires, but low intensity ground fires that would burn along the ground, remove competing species, thin out the forest, get some small tree, upstart trees that might crowd out the big granddaddy trees and would kill all them off. And that's why when you look up at say Chautauqua, and you see a forest that is, you know, burned fairly regularly, the trees are really widely spaced. Those ponderosa pine trees can be hundreds of feet apart, just a little cluster here, a little cluster there. When we put out fire in those forests, you know, every fire that occurred in them for a hundred years, suddenly those forests are shoulder to shoulder. You, uh, we have forests um, above uh, a boulder that have more than 10 times more trees in them than they did naturally. Wow. In Mexico and in Arizona, they have forests that they've seeded as well as put out every natural fire in them. And they have 40 times more trees, more stems than they did historically. So when a fire gets loose in that forest, it behaves entirely different. It's not going to be that easy ground fire that went through and just killed off a couple of the little trees and left the big ones with just a little cat, what they call a cat face fire scar on them. It's going to get up into the crowns of the trees and it's going to be explosive and burn, you know, entirely differently, be far more threatening, far more difficult to deal with for the people that live near it. Um, and so when we talk about controlled burns and reintroducing fire to these landscapes, what we're trying to do is mimic what natural fire did to these landscapes. Um, it makes those uh, mega fires, these really explosive fires, less likely, but it also makes for a healthier landscape. A lot of these forests need fire. You know, the you know, uh, lodgepole pine forests need fire to reproduce. Their cones are serotonous. They're, they're held together with a little wax, and that wax only melts in a fire to drop the seeds in the torched ground, and those seeds want to grow in recently burned ground. That's the case mm-hmm. with sequoias out in California, too. Um, but also we have species like the black-backed woodpecker 
it needs snag forests, these uh, totally severely burned forests where certain insects live, that's their habitat. They nest right next to those, that's where they go to eat. And a lot of these species, both plants and animals that are dependent on um, fire and sometimes severely burned forests fell into steep decline as we put out all of these fires. So that's another benefit of controlled burns, you know, of you know what we've seen at Heil Ranch outside of Boulder before we saw the fire that burned through last year. You know, they had some really successful prescribed burns. We've seen them regularly, and we know that we need to burn exponentially more land um, in the country. Um, to uh, reduce the fire hazard and also to make these forests more healthy. The challenge is that once those forests are overgrown and they've got all that fuel in them, pretty hard to reintroduce fire there in a way that's oh, not going to be explosive. Yeah. So plan, you know, firefighters and forest managers plan out these prescribed burns at times of year when they're less likely to get away, when there's snow on the ground to help contain them, when mm -hmm. there's a lot of moisture, you know, uh, you know, and they'll, you know, monitor wind conditions, everything so that it's safe to reintroduce fire into this landscape. And they'll have a goal of how many trees per acre we want to survive this fire that is in keeping with what was historically there. Um, and cool. so the, you know, these fires are both uh, valuable for protecting values at risk from a really extreme fire in the future, but they're also critical to the health of these forests. You know, regular fire for a lot of these forests is really important for the plant and animal species that live there. Definitely. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that little, that little tidbit of, well, actually not tidbit, quite, quite a bit of detail. I think that's something people, <laughs> not all that. people understand. No, no, it's great, man. I don't think ever, people think of fire as like the end of the world hellscape, big disaster, but it actually is a healthy part of nature. And that's, I was kind of curious about how, it, um, how it originates. I can't just all be man-made, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all complex stuff. And Michael, I've got so many questions I'd love to ask you, but unfortunately we're kind of getting towards the end here. So I just want to get down to a, a couple more things. Sure. Um, so you were, you were an instructor at the university in like the environmental center or the journalism center? I was in or, the or uh, journalism department of the CMCI and one of the mm -hmm. directors of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University Very of Colorado. Cool. I just want to know what you learned from teaching other people about environmental issues and journalism when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's very exciting. Um, and, uh, you know, journalism is, it was always a tough field to be always very competitive, doesn't pay great, you don't do it to get rich. Um, and it's, you know, if you follow the decline of newspapers in particular, where I spent my career, you know, when I was a picture editor at the Hartford Current in Connecticut back in the late 1990s, I think we had a photo staff of 21 you know, 21 photographers. That newspaper has one photographer now. Um, you know, the staffs have just been decimated. It's really um, uh, hard to be, to find a newspaper that has a dedicated envi environmental reporter, you know, much less a climate reporter. So, um, you know, my goal in teaching journalism, and I still, you know, um, mentor and teach and work with a lot of interns and other folks is to kind of release an army of uh, really great environmental reporters, people that understand how to explain the science, to understand the science and explain it, how to interview scientists and how to connect with them to get that kind of information and that foundational data for their reporting, how to, you know, turn around a story when it's still valuable as news, when it helps people vote or, you know, make a decision, um, you know, in the next few days. Um, you know, one of the things that we see a lot of in uh, the media world is either um, people, you know, holding court, you know, the vast number of people that are kind of holding court based on other people's reporting, what other information, information that other people gathered and possibly cherry picking that data to support a point of view they've already got. Um, which is uh, um, something that, you know, really good journalists really strive against. There's a, a quote I used from uh, the great author, Sebastian Younger, who wrote The Perfect Storm and has made, you know, great documentaries about the war in Afghanistan. And, and Sebastian's quote, uh, you know, that I talked to him about once uh, um, a number of years ago was, um, a journalist is somebody who is willing to disappoint themselves with the truth. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you go into a story with a hunch and you think it's this way and suddenly the science and the facts tell you it's a different way. Well, you got to write a different story. You know, the mm-hmm. facts will tell you what to do. But the other thing that has happened in the journalism world is that we see a lot of um, stuff that takes a long time to turn around. Um, and that's the nature of it. It's hard to get the documents. It's hard to get people to talk. You know, you're dealing with opaque industries and and government. Um, and so it's really important to have what we had in the newspaper world, which is urgency that, um, you know, this information is valuable now in a week, it's not going to be as valuable. And in a month, you know, that election will have happened or this will have happened. And it's too late for people to learn this stuff and actually be able to influence it. And so, you know, teaching the skills of how to get this stuff and turn it around quickly and realize, yeah, it may not be the best writing you ever do in your life. And it may not be the best photos that you ever take in your life, but they're more valuable now than they will be in a week if you perfect your writing and you make the best pictures you can. So we go with it now. And that's a lot of what we do where we're at, you know, Uh, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. We want to do really good daily climate journalism. And occasionally we want it to be as top notch as we can possibly make it. But a lot of the time it's like, it's not that it's good enough. We want it to be better than good enough, but we also want it to be out there when it's valuable to readers. Yeah. And I think, we, I think it's really, I can be the bane of a lot of people, whether you're building your own business or you're working and you're afraid to like put your work out there. If it's not, you get too far into the weeds. You're like, it's not perfect. I don't want to release it. But again, not only is journalism time sensitive, but of course the climate issue is more time sensitive than anything else we can think of. Sorry. So that's why I'm always trying to work as much as I possibly can with what I'm doing. But Michael, it's been awesome to talk to you man you've 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 have a very you have a lot of knowledge a lot of information a lot of experience a lot of different stuff that you've done um so my, my last question to you is what advice do you have for the next generation who's coming up right now during all this stuff um ask tough questions mm-hmm. don't take anything at face value just because you think the people you're dealing with are on the side of the angels doesn't mean that you shouldn't scrutinize them just as much as the other side Um, You know, there are climate solutions out there that are terrible ideas. People really believe in them. Um, You need to make up your own mind. And so be uh, critical and discerning and, you know, make up your own mind. And, you know, really, you know, as far as the news that you take in or the information you take in, hey, you know, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. Um, you know, 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 what's the data that they base this on? Can you go to the primary sources? Can you read the science to see if it says exactly what you're being told? You know, take a little bit more time to, you know, ask those tough questions yourself. Um, There's a reason in journalism that, you know, we're not licensed like a doctor or a lawyer, Uh which is that everybody should be applying journalistic standards, you know, when they read things, you know, take in as much information as you can and be as discerning as you can with it. Spoken by a true journalist. Absolutely. I love it. Michael, thank you so much for joining me this week. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. It was a pleasure speaking with you and thanks for doing what you do. No worries, man. All right, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Take it easy. See you, man. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, then please visit ccrboulder.com today.